Wednesday. We're going to be continuing in our series in 1 Corinthians, Correcting Carnality in Christ's Church. Last Sunday, we looked at Paul's stern, sarcastic correction aimed primarily at the Corinthians' carnal unity. We saw this in chapter 4, verses 6 to 13. Uh, in a way to, or in, in an effort to really just kind of wake up these backslidden brothers and sisters to keep them from continuing down that destructive path they were on, the apostle corrected them for what? Going beyond what is written. You know, we're just reflecting on what we learned. He poured contempt on their detestable, uh, deadly pride. Pride's a, a great killer. And he compared them with the apostles who were essentially modeling the Christian life. He was saying, look, here's how you're to live. Here's what you're to do. We're following Christ. Follow us. In the next section, Paul tells them why he was so harsh. Because he was. That last text is really, really hard. And now he tells them why he was so harsh. And ultimately, it's because he loves them like a father might call it a tough love. And in this next section, through his words, we will discover five characteristics of a loving father. We see it just clearly, these things clearly illustrated here in his writings. And, and I think that they can be obviously applied to, to parents, right? You have a child or a more than one child, if you have children, they can, these principles, these characteristics can be applied to you and should be. And also to elders who are like spiritual parents in their churches. And so I think that the next section is not an apology from him, but it's an explanation as to why he's been so harsh. But he kind of lays out how a loving father should be toward his children or a loving elder toward his congregation. And those, that's what we'll draw from this passage. It's very practical very simple, and but poignant and good. So we'll go ahead and pray before we get into the text. If you guys could just turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 again. This is the rest of chapter 4, the end of it. By the way, this is the end of the section on carnal unity as well. We get into carnal sexuality in the coming weeks. But chapter 4, verses 14 to 21 is where we'll be focused today. This is where we'll see these character traits or characteristics. I'd like to pray before we get to work. Father, we behold you seated on your throne, sovereign, ruling and reigning over the cosmos and ruling and reigning over our hearts as your kingdom members. Father, we yield to you and submit to you and your ruleship, your reignship, your kingship. We pray that you instruct us from your word, which is both powerful and effective. And may we hear it, may we believe it, may we apply it, may we live it. As parents, as future parents, as even singles, as elders in the church, the application here is very broad. May we hear it learn it, apply it, and live it. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your work through the Holy Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. 
Amen. We'll pick it up where we left off last week, looking at our first point. A loving father admonishes his children. We see this in verse 14. This is what Paul says next after laying down probably one of the harshest or hardest admonitions and corrections that I've seen anywhere in any of his letters. Though I was talking to Rachel about it the other day and she said, what about the time when she wanted the Ju he wanted the Judaizers to emasculate themselves? And I said, well, that was pretty hard too. But of course, that was aimed at false teachers. This correction is aimed at legitimate believers. And so uh, he says very plainly and simply, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Paul tells the Corinthians that his corrections, although sharp and sarcastic, are not meant to degrade or humiliate or to make them ashamed. That's what it means to degrade and to humiliate. He's not aiming for that in these hard corrections, but to admonish. The Greek word for admonish is nuthateo, and it means to instruct with warning. That's what an admonition is. It's not a word that we use. It's a bit archaic, but it means to give instruction with a warning or to warn someone of danger. He says, I, I didn't write these difficult, harsh things to you with the intent of crushing you, but hopefully to create contrition and brokenness and repentance to lead you away from danger. This is essentially what he's saying. He's warning. Now, it is possible for fathers, for elders alike, to correct in a way that tears down rather than builds up. And it is also possible to spare the rod, which means not to admonish and give discipline. So you've got two extremes. You can go too far or have the wrong motivation and attitude, and it can be purely about punishment and tearing someone down. And then you can go to the other extreme and just not say anything at all and spare them the admonishment they need. You have these two extremes. And both are wrong. Both are not scriptural. Both are forbidden. And if you spare the rod, which is something that, that I've counseled parents on in the past, if you spare the rod, if you just don't give the discipline and the admonitions that a child needs and you let them you know, just, just do what they do, uh, it just cultivates more rebellion and completely diminishes, if not destroys, any respect for authority. And I think that we can see how this is playing out and how this is pervasive in our culture today. Amen? You have these children, because when you're in your 20s, you're a child to me. You have them out in full force, wearing black, beating people up, protesting, tearing stuff up. These are children who were never disciplined. Through the discipline and through the admonitions, a child learns to respect and honor authority. And you have a culture now that does not honor or fear authority at all. And that's why we see what we see. Someone wisely said years ago, it's just the breakdown of the family that we're seeing manifested. And that's exactly it. Dads aren't home to, 
to do discipline and these sorts of things. Mom has to do essentially everything. And sometimes moms aren't the best at laying down admonishments and discipline. They're nurturers and tenderhearted and wired differently. Guys are the ones that are supposed to carry the switch or the rod. And so often they're not even home. They're out with other women. And it is the breakdown of society. But if you spare the rod, if you go too far, you crush them. If you don't do anything, you create in them more rebellion and all these other bad things follow. Bottom line, these approaches, these extreme approaches are not biblical. And I think the same is true in churches. Elders are to admonish believers in a way that exposes sin gently and lovingly, but offers a way out offers solutions, even practical biblical solutions. Look, look, you're entangled in this. Firstly, you can confess it. Secondly, you can repent. And let's write out what repentance looks like because repentance is action. You have an addictive or an addiction. We, we need to work on this together. I mean, there's just solutions. Elders are to do the same thing as parents with their children. They admonish and do things in such a way that exposes sin and offers a way out. Ultimately, their guidelines for, for carrying out church discipline, they're right there in Matthew 18, 15 to 17. If your brother sins against you, you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, you take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be as to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. What is a Gentile or a tax collector in the Jewish mind? An outsider. Someone who does not have the Spirit of God is not in the fold of God, not as a, isn't a covenant member, and someone that we need to evangelize rather than treat them as just a wayward brother. And sometimes it means excommunication. We remove them from the body depending on the toxicity of their sin. If their sin is so pervasive in impacting and hurting others, they've got to go. But it's in love that we do this. But I want you to notice how the text I just read, it says nothing about tearing a brother or sister down. It says nothing about letting them off the hook. It doesn't say pulverize them. And then it also doesn't teach that we are to just let it go. Sin is serious. It must be dealt with. If not, it will eventually destroy the sinner. And it is. it has this ability to spread like a disease and impact others. And the next thing you know, your entire church has been infected and is being plagued and harmed and sickened because of one man's sin that went unchecked, or one woman. So it has to be dealt with, but there is a right, proper way to deal with it in our homes and in our churches. Gentle but firm. Stern, but not exasperating. Constructive, not destructive. Punishment is not the goal. We are to always aim for restoration. I mean, that's the goal of admonishment. That's the goal of all church discipline is restoration. 
to repair a broken person through the gospel, to repair broken and fragmented relationships because sometimes our sin has a bomb blast effect and hurts all sorts of people around us, marriages, families, churches. It's always about reconciliation. In fact, we have been given a ministry of what? Reconciliation in the gospel. So the goal is always to recover and to reconcile and to restore not just to punish. And I would draw a distinction. It is the Spirit of God that aims for reconciliation and restoration. It is our flesh that aims for punishment. Vindiction, vengeance, making somebody feel what they've caused others to feel. That's a flesh. There's a proper way, there's an improper way. I think I like gentle but firm. Because you can be so gentle that you never get to the admonishment and then you're not helping the person. But the admonishment needs to be handled in love. And I will admit that sometimes it's very hard to do that as an elder. It's sometimes it's hard to do that as a parent. Really, each scenario, every situation is going to impact how you respond. If the severity is very low, obviously there's no reason for you to get steamed and to potentially lose it and to mishandle admonishment or discipline. But if the, if the offense is great and grievous, then the potential is much higher for us to blow our own stack. And one of the things that I, that I can't stand the most is to see people mistreating others. And so that's hard for me. I have to temper myself in those moments. If I see two saints trying to destroy each other or one just trying to live for Jesus and the other one trying to end that one's life for Jesus, it, it's very difficult for me to say, well, you know, that's just not the best way. <laughs> Let's paint a happy little repentance like Bob Ross. I don't know, that's kind of being facetious, but... It's difficult for me to be gentle when the offense is great or it inflicts very har much harm on someone. I think we would all agree, but that doesn't change what we're to do. I mean, in, in, in my mind, and something that I need to entertain and I try to do this as I deal with others, and sometimes I forget, but I try to remember how much admonishment I deserve and how much correction I deserve from the Lord because of the way I live my life at times. And so that helps to kind of balance the way that I might respond to someone else. That if I see myself first, covered by grace and mercy, the most undeserving person in this church in my mind, second only to Paul, the chief of sinners, then that's going to help balance how I correct and admonish someone else to be mindful of me. You know I've said it before, hold a mirror up while you're correcting somebody. That way you get a glance of you and say, hey, I need this too, or I remember it wasn't that long ago when I was getting it. Right? None of us are better than each other. There's a proper way, an improper way. Uh, we aim for restoration. In Ephesians 6, 4, I think Paul is kind of echoing what he's saying here in, in Corinthians. In verse 14, He's saying something in verse 14, and it sounds like Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I think that's what he's saying. That's what he's aiming to do. 
Notice what Paul said near the end of verse 14 in our text. He said, as my beloved children. He sees himself as a loving father to the Corinthians. And this is why he admonishes them. Let me tell you, I think Paul was much closer to the mark in terms of being like Christ than I tend to be or we tend to be. Because again, the, the, the nature or impact of one's sin really plays on how we respond to them. And when you just stop and think about the sins in this church and the competitiveness and, and, and the battling over who's the best preacher and the mistreatment of everyone and then the sexual immorality. When you just stack up all that's going on in this church, I don't know if I could respond to these people like Paul. Because in the past, I've responded to people not in the right way for far less. How how do you maintain this loving father mentality and attitude toward believers who are doing such things? Usually what we say is, I don't think they're real believers. Which is, you've just gone as far as you can go in your analysis. That, that, that's like saying, they're going to hell. That, that's not loving. This guy is a better man than I ever, ever will be. Just he, he sees them as, as a loving father. It's amazing to me, especially with, with all that they're doing. And there's a word picture that's being painted here as he says, my beloved children. It's, it's that of a loving father warning his son, but not provoking the child to wrath or exasperation. Fits perfectly with what uh, Paul said a little later about disciplining children in Colossians 3.21. It's very similar to what he said in the Ephesians text. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. You go back and read that previous section. I don't know. MacArthur says, Paul was not being hard in his correction in order to shame the Corinthians, to make them cringe and cower. They had much to be ashamed of, and if they took the apostles' words to heart, they could not have helped but be ashamed. But it was not Paul's ultimate purpose to shame them. He would leave that to their own consciences. You know, sometimes we just let the Holy Spirit bring in that contrition and conviction and embarrassment. I don't need to be the one that's flashing it in neon above their head. You should feel really stupid. MacArthur goes on to say his purpose was to admonish them, to exhort them, to plead with them to repent and correct their ways. That's the goal of admonition. I was thinking about the Old Testament, Eli, you might remember that cat, he was a high priest at the tabernacle in a place called Shiloh, and, but he was really just an irresponsible father. Only after he was very old did he question his son's wicked habits. At that point, his sons Hophni and Phinehas, they were all grown up and just well beyond his instruction and, and any sort of control, if we even want to call it that. I mean, there's just no way that when they're in their middle or late 20s or whatever that 
you know, a parent's advice at that point when you've said nothing their whole life. Yeah, you know what, I'm 26 now. I really want to listen to you. Well, if, you if you weren't instructing them when they were here, they're not going to take your instruction when they're here. And this guy didn't do that. His sons were a disaster. They abused the sacrificial offerings. They fornicated with women who were coming into the tent of meeting to worship. And it seems that Eli had no concept or awareness of what they were doing at all. And yet, at some point, people were witnessing what's going on, like his son's walking off with worshipers to go do things with them. And they, they witnessed these things that these children of his were doing and finally said something to him. And, and he's like, huh? He was aloof. Maybe he was so wrapped up in his ministry that he wasn't paying attention to his family. Because that happens. That can happen. Now, you can be so wrapped up in your own little life and your leisure in doing things that you're not paying attention, paying attention to your family. And things happen, and then somebody comes along, mama comes along and tells you, Daddy, you even seen what the kids have been doing? No, no, what are they doing? No, this is what they're doing. You've got to be kidding me. Hmm. That's Eli. He wasn't even aware of what's going on. Scripture says that his, his own life and that of his sons ended tragically because he had not admonished them as a firm, caring, loving father. 1 Samuel 2, 12 to 36. Point being, a loving father admonishes his children. He is gentle but firm. Elder pastors are like fathers in the church, and they are to follow the same pattern. Let's move to our second point. Number two, a loving father begets his children, verse 15. This is kind of like a no-duh, because to beget means it's a procreative term, right? Mama and daddy come together, you, you beget children sometimes. Sometimes you don't, sometimes you do. It's a procreative term. He says this in verse 15, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul is declaring that the Corinthians have countless guides in Christ. There's no shortage of good preacher teachers out there that you're listening to. You know, I know you've got your Ligonier podcast on your stone-made iPhone. You've got all these things. You've got all these resources. You've got all these guys, these cats coming through the church and preaching the word. You have countless guides in Christ, countless expositors, countless counselors, countless preachers. And he's not even upset about that. I think he rejoices in that. And I think he was referring specifically to, to the list of their most cherished preachers, Apollos and Cephas, and any other preacher teachers who were ministering at this church. And he's not being sarcastic here at all. I think he's thrilled that this church, among so many churches that didn't have this, but this particular church had so many able-bodied men who are coming through and ministering to this congregation. That's a blessing. And I think Paul recognizes that, and he's okay with that. All right? He's cool with it. 
He's happy that these brothers and sisters have so many able-bodied men making investments in them. It's not a bad idea or a threat to our church or to any other church, really, if you think about it, to have outside pastors pour into these congregations, our congregation. That's not a, a bad thing, provided that that's a qualified guy. I mean, this is why we send men just about every year to ShepCon, the Shepherds Conference down south. Every year we send guys down there. And this is why we bring in from time to time guest speakers, preachers. Right? God has talented, gifted, able-bodied, spirit-filled, theologically tight, doctrinally sound men and women all over the globe, everywhere, not just here. They're everywhere. The danger lies in being so inwardly focused that we never expose ourselves to other faithful brothers and sisters whom God is using mightily. That's the, there's where the fatality is. Now, you can have a, a church where you have an able-bodied minister, and that's great, and that, that's what you want. But it's okay to have outside men and women, women for you women, men for you men, men for you women as well. We have, there's great male pastors and preachers throughout the world, but it's good. It's good to be influenced by them. It's good to hear the word exposited from them. They make deposits in our lives. It's a good thing. They're all over the place, some even in our own community. Paul's happy for the Corinthians here. The countless guides were great ministers and a real help, but Paul draws a distinction. They weren't like fathers. There is a difference. They did not beget the Corinthians like Paul did. To beget means to produce. It's a procreative term. It's archaic like some of the other words we use in our sermons. It's rarely seen anymore. It appears quite a bit in the Geneva Bible, which is a, one of the earliest translations. In Deuteronomy 4.25 in that Geneva, it says, When thou shalt beget children and children's children. There's the procreativeness of it. Having kids, kids having kids. Now, Paul was not involved at all in the physical begetting of the Corinthians. They had earthly parents that were not Paul. But since he was the first person to visit Corinth and preach the gospel there and see men and women born again by the Spirit of God, he sees himself as their begetter. He sees himself as a spiritual father and begetter to them. Paul is saying, you've got countless guides and that's fine. But I was there when you were born again. I became your father in Christ through the gospel. I love you like a dad. That's why I'm admonishing you. I mean, who wrote the letter? I didn't know 1 Corinthians was written by Apollos or Cephas. It wasn't. Paul sees himself as a spiritual father to these spiritual children, and Daddy wrote a letter to them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, the true Daddy is God. The greatest Father here is, is the Heavenly Father acting through this earthly Father to these children. 
That's what we see. The fact is Paul had spiritual progeny everywhere he visited and ministered. I mean, his ministry was just fruitful. You know, if he went into a community and preached the gospel, people got saved and a church was planted. And those were like his spiritual children. Unfortunately, many Christians have never become spiritual fathers or mothers. They've never produced any spiritual offspring. They've never led a person to Christ and helped train him or her in the ways of God. Like Paul. MacArthur says they are, in a sense, contradictions to what a Christian is. Every believer should be a spiritual father or mother, God's instrument for bringing new lives into his kingdom through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's that's evangelism. That's what that means. God adding children to his family, God adding saints to his kingdom through some little earthly father who preaches the gospel. And I think that in a broader way, this term, beget, it carries the idea of of also bearing responsibility for. I think that's really the, the heart of the meaning here. The one who spiritually begets is also responsible for watching over and caring for his spiritual child. I think that's what Paul is getting at. None of the countless guides wrote this letter, as I've already said. Paul wrote it because he is the spiritual begetter and father. He's the one taking responsibility for these spiritual children because he's the one who was there when they were given birth through the Spirit. Does that make sense? Years ago, I witnessed a a really weird phenomenon. And I don't even know if I'd call it a phenomenon because that makes it sound like, ooh, it was big and global. But it was a weird thing that brothers and sisters that I associated with and knew, they were the ones doing this. And what they started doing was they began to call distant pastors that they would watch online or read their books, read their sermons and materials. They were distant, far, Texas, New York. They started, people here in my circle started calling those men out there their pastors. Oh, Matt Chandler's my pastor. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I know he lives in Texas, but he's my pastor. Mark Driscoll is my pastor. Boy, whoever said that back 10 years ago is really regretting that. John Piper is my pastor. I almost agree with that one. Tim Keller is my pastor. This this is what people were saying. Oh, like my pastor over in New York at the Presby Church there, you know, and it's like, pastor. In fact, Rachel and I, know a guy who kind of started a little home thing at his house and it was tethered to a church in Texas, not local. And this little body in this home collected offerings and did everything they could and sent it all to this church in Texas. And that guy over there was the thought of as their pastor and that was their, you know, worship service. They would just stream that in and that was their worship. It was like they thought they were there. And I was like, yeah, so people were doing this. 
And I think they still do it, but, but they were really doing it maybe near 10 years ago, and it was really, really weird. And the same people, with the exception of that one home group I just mentioned, the same people actually had physical pastors over them. Like they had a pastor that they sat under every week, but, but that guy was like their pastor, but their, their, the, the pastor they really liked was the guy in Texas. It's just weird. L look, your pastor is the guy that shows up every Sunday and proclaims the word. That's your pastor. Your pastor is, is the one who officiates over your weddings and funerals. Good luck getting Matt Chandler to get a flight to come out here and do that for you. He is one of many countless guides. Your pastor is the one who visits you in the hospital. Your pastor is the one who prays and weeps with you when the oncologist calls and says, it's not good. Tim Keller, can you come out here and console me? I just got a really bad cancer verdict. Guy didn't even know you, doesn't care about you. The pastor, your pastor, is the guy who begets you as if you were his own child. That is your pastor. I don't even have myself in mind right now. I have the elders in mind. But that's your pastor. It's disturbing to see men laboring the way that they are for their congregations and for their congregations to ascribe that to someone else that has nothing to do with them and doesn't care about them, doesn't know them. Meanwhile, Fred over here has given his life to those people. And this is the one they cherish, some guy on a TV who probably doesn't even know his own congregation because his church is too stinking big. You know, I, I, I love, uh, probably one of my, my favorites, I don't know if we're supposed to play favorites, God is impartial, I'm highly partial. Um, I love Vody Bauckham. He's not my pastor. I love Sinclair Ferguson. He's Scottish, when he goes I just, I just, it does something to me. It's like Chewbacca. It's like a Scottish Chewbacca. I love it. Rachel and I went to this conference and he preached and we were just like, I could just sit and listen to this guy forever because of the tones and the accents and stuff. And when they say at all, they say at all. I love that. He's not my pastor. I love Paul Washer. He's not my pastor. I love... Rick Countryman, he's no longer my pastor. None of the men that I've mentioned would even claim to be my pastor. They know better. My pastors, first and foremost, my pastor is Jesus. Secondly, my pastors down here on this side are Cameron and Dave and in 19 years, Dustin takes a long time. And in a way, still Bruce. Those 
are my pastors. They are like fathers to me, sometimes more like brothers, but sometimes fatherly. Point, point being, they love me. They shepherd me. They admonish me every three days. They beget me in a sense, don't they? And I am like a father to them, especially the young guys. Cameron has been like a son to me in many ways. And, and we elder pastors are like spiritual fathers to you. You are like our spiritual children. Now, pay close attention. A father may beget his child, bring him into the world with a little bit of help from mama. That's how we act. I brought you into the world. Mama's over there. I did everything. I missed church because of this. So a father may beget his child, be involved in the bringing of the child into the world, obviously with the 110% work of mama, but it is also entirely possible for him not to beget his child in the way I'm describing. The deadbeat dad is a perfect example of this. The dad who is home but is always tuned out is a great example. The dad who chooses sports over Christ every Sunday while his children look on and say, Dad, are we going to go to church? Prime example of one who has not, he does not beget his child in the way that I am describing. To beget is not just to bring in, but to bring up. A begetter takes ownership, assumes responsibility, and exercises leadership in the child's life. He is the priest of his home, teaching and admonishing his children. He does not abdicate his high calling and leave it to his church. This used to drive me crazy as a youth minister. That able-bodied, capable, believing men would bring their young sons in and say, make something out of Jimmy. And I would say, why don't you? I'm, I'm a supplement. They would defer to me to raise up their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. If you ask me, I think that dad that does that is worse than an unbeliever. See, this loving father does not abdicate this responsibility. He doesn't leave it to anyone else. He does not depend on youth ministries. He does not depend on parachurch organizations. He does not depend on circuit preachers to raise his, chi his child, his children. He does not do that. He does not leave it to someone else to raise his children to love and obey Jesus. He won't do it. His home is a Christian academy. It is a seminary. The first one his children, his child will ever experience. And everything outside of his home is supplementary. Likewise, elders do not abdicate these responsibilities. They are to feed the sheep, John 21, 15 to 18. Guard the flock 
Acts 20:28. We don't hire security. We've got a bunch of flock members. Go over there and watch them for us. We watch them. And they are to chase off wolves. Acts 20, 29, giving instruction to the Ephesian elders. Many wolves will rise up among you. Drive them out. They'll arise amongst, amongst your own ranks. You might become a wolf. Deal with the wolves. Loving elders are to care for the souls of God's children just as they care for the lives of their own children. This was Paul's aim. It should be my aim. It should be the aim of the other elders. And it should be your aim as parents and future parents and grandparents and so on and so forth. That's Paul's point here. Third point, number three, a loving father sets an example for his children. Verses 16 to 17a. Uh, I urge you then be imitators of me. This is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. So we, we already know that the Corinthians had been imitating their pagan culture, especially the local philosophers, right? We know this. The first three chapters really established this. That's what they were fascinated with. They were more, more like culture than Christ. Paul now urge, ur, he, he's literally urging them to imitate himself. Stop, stop imitating Corinth. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is what he's saying here. He even sends his young protege, Timothy, to this church to do what? To remind them of his ways in Christ. Paul had trained Timothy in godly living and in pastoral ministry. This young man became the pastor at Ephesus. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians while he was in Ephesus. If we do the math, it sure would seem that as he wrote this letter and Timothy's pastoring there, he says, Timothy, take a break from your pulpit and take this letter up north 30 miles to Corinth and read it before this church. And then I want you to stay a while and model what I've taught you because they don't get it. That's, I think, what's happening here. Notice Paul's language, beloved, faithful, child. This is parental language again. It's endearing, like in verse 15. That of a loving father. Paul's view of Timothy was exactly the same as that of the Corinthians. Why? Because they were all part of his spiritual little family, if you want to call it, or progeny. He had led Timothy and most of the people in Corinth to Christ. So he speaks the same way concerning Timothy. He's my child. You are my children. Watch his example. Listen to him. He's my, he's my ambassador there to you. Point being, loving fathers, they set a Christ-like example for their children. Thing is, when kids are young, more is caught than taught. This means that they learn by watching their parents. They copy what we do. They copy what we say. It's always funny when, well, I guess it's not funny, but you're watching some kind of a video clip, and then a child uses some bad word, and then the parents are super, super surprised. 
I think you probably taught them that word. This is funny, as I'm sitting at a wedding last night, my last one of the year, praise God. And um, I remembered that I hadn't done my daily reading or any of that, and I'm in the wedding, and, and, and I'm, at the, I'm not in the wedding, like I'm marrying them. I'm there playing music. It's, you know, an hour and a half of just a playlist that's on auto, and I'm just sitting there, and I'm like, I can squeeze in my daily. So I download my, my daily on Kindle, because I have book form, and, I, and I'm sitting there reading it, and I'm reading in Ezekiel 16, and then I read this little short, quick verse, like mother, like daughter, chapter 16, verse 44. And I was like, I have to rewrite my sermon when I get home. <laughs> no, you, that's why God created the sticky note. You just make a little note and add that right to there. And I, I look through my script. When is it that I say more is caught than taught? And they follow our example. Okay, there it is. Put it right next to that. I even put a little fancy arrow on it because I have OCD. <laughs> Perfect verse. What I'm saying is scriptural. Like mother, like child. Like daughter. Daughters figure out how to do what they do by watching mama. Sons, dad, vice versa. It's the point. When they get a little older, though, and develop stronger comprehension, that's when they can begin to better grasp what we teach them from Scripture. I mean, just because they're really, really young and can't really comprehend or communicate very well, you know, doesn't mean that you shouldn't be reading Scripture to them, doesn't mean that you shouldn't be teaching them the gospel. But as they get a little bit older, you can actually teach them verbally, and they begin to grasp they move from just catching what you're doing, and they do that their whole life, by the way. They'll mimic you 30 years later, but point being, at first, they just catch things and learn that way, and then as they can begin to communicate and comprehend, then they really start to, you can teach them verbally. But if a parent teaches the word to their child but doesn't himself live out its precepts, the child will eventually see them as a hypocrite. Scary thought. You can't, you can't tell your child, uh, Sally, th this is wrong. You shouldn't be doing this. If you've ever told your child that, I don't know, do you have a kid named Sally? I hope not. You look at little Sally in the eyes. You say, you know, you, you really can't do that, Sally. That's against God's word. But, Daddy, I, I, I saw you do it last week. At that point, I'd be like, well, yes, and I shouldn't do it either, Sally. And, uh, you know. You know, you have to actually live out what you're teaching because children have the best hypocrisy detectors ever known to man. They do. They'll call you on everything. Ryan has wrecked my life <laughs> so many times it's not even funny. He is like my walking conscience. You never confide anything in that young man because he will go right to mama. And it's like, you weren't supposed to tell her that. What are you doing? My job. <laughs> and then I say, I, I'm not going to tell him anything. And, and Rachel's like, no, he, he knows. He's, he works for me. And I was like, oh. <laughs> I love the fact that he's like that. You know, that he, well, I don't like the fact that he tells on daddy all the time. But, you know, if, if daddy um, stopped and thought about what he was doing more, 
and aimed a little higher, maybe, maybe I wouldn't have that problem. And maybe Ryan would boast for me. That's probably not going to happen. But. <laughs> you know what Dad did? It was beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> Elder pastors, they are like fathers in this regard. They're to set a Christ-like example for their congregations. In fact, the qualifications that are listed in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, they have a dual purpose, and we don't tend to think of them like this. First, they are the qualities an elder pastor must possess and prove in order to be an elder pastor, right? They're qualifications, like this is how you have to be. So we, I think most of us know that and understand that, and that's the direction we go in, but do we deal with the second purpose of it? And that is that they are the example that he is to set. They're not just, they're not just here's what you're to be, here's what you're to display to the congregation. They're also that. It's the example that he must set, because we're talking about setting an example. It's the example, you have to have these qualities, but it's the example that you set for your congregation. I just want to walk quickly through 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 6. Speaking of the elder pastor, he must not have a bad reputation, verse 2a. He must be a faithful husband to one wife. Okay, back then they had major polygamy like the Mormons do in weird places back east, and I don't know why I said that, but it's true. Husband of one wife. You can't have multiple wives in these things. Verse 2b, uh, he must be sober-minded. And I think that really means clear-headed. He's not someone who's scatterbrained. He thinks clearly. Verse 2c, he must be self-controlled. Verse 2d, and I think that's a broad term. He's got to be self-controlled in his temper and his behavior and these sorts of things. He must be respectable or modest. Verse 2e, Modest, I like. He must be hospitable, verse 2F. He must be able to teach, verse 2G. He must not be a drunkard, verse 3A. He must not be violent, but gentle. He has to be gentle, not violent. He can't be, uh, um, he can't be someone who wants to fight everyone all the time, verse 3B. Uh, pugnacious, I think, is, is some of the, the word that's used there. He must not be quarrelsome, right? He always wants to argue and quarrel with people, verse 3c. He must not be a lover of money, verse 3d. But what about Dave Ramsey? Be careful. <laughs> Seriously. We say, well, because Dave Ramsey's a Christian, he taught me how to maximize my money. Dave Ramsey, if you're not careful, you can learn to become a lover of money under him. Be careful with that. He must manage his own household well. And right following that, it says, how can he manage the church if he can't manage his own house? Verse 4a, and then lastly, he must not be a new convert. And we see that in verse 6 of 1 Timothy 3. These are the qualifications. The elder pastor must possess and practice these qualities because he is a leader in the church, and it's because he sets the example for how Christians should live. And I think guys, you know, look at this list and they say things like, well, this is just too much. Thank God I don't have a desire to be any kind of pastor or elder in the church. This is just, it's just too involved. It's just too much. I, I just, I'm glad I'm not called to that. And let me tell you something. That's the wrong attitude because what I just read to you is exactly how God wants every one of his children to live. 
Oh, that's just for pastor elders. No, that's for every believer. No Christian should have a bad reputation. No Christian should be a womanizer or a manizer. No Christian should be double-minded, out of control, immodest, inhospitable, unable to articulate the gospel. Heaven forbid no Christian should be a drunkard or a doper. No Christian should be violent. No Christian should be quarrelsome. No Christian should be a lover of money. No Christian should be a, man, a bad, a bad, a bad steward, a bad manager at home. This isn't God's call just for pastor elders. This is God's call for his whole church. And pastor elders are to set the example. Well, I'm glad I'm not called to be an elder. Okay, fine. You're called to be what I just described. Which means stop sleeping with your girlfriend. Stop getting hammered on Friday. You who name Christ. These, the standards are for all of us, not just pastor elders. They're for Christian husbands, for Christian fathers. And to be quite honest with you, they're really, in a way, under part of God's law. I realize they're requirements and qualities, but you could probably find them under the law of God, which means th that they are for everyone, and they are standards by which God will judge the world. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? That, wait a minute, I thought that was just for pastor elders. I guess I can live at some kind of standard below that because I have no aspirations to be that. Wrong. Wrong. And because these things are seemingly impossible for a great many that profess Christ, you're darn right, they should never even think about becoming elders. And any sober-minded elder board is not going to approve anyone who doesn't fit with this. And do us elders do all of these things perfectly? No. Sometimes we fail at one or two. I'm not the best steward of resource at times. I not a drunkard, but sometimes I, I have a temper. I am a faithful husband to one wife. Do I have a, a good reputation? Pretty much. But I'm sure you could, you know, dredge up somebody from Somerset. He was the karate kid on acid. You know, it's like... <laughs> You know, it, <laughs> but I mean, right now, I don't think there's a lot of people out there going around going, oh, let me tell you, you know, I'm not a new convert, although sometimes I feel like I need to be born again, again. Do I manage my household well? I think pretty much, but there's areas for improvement. Am I a lover of money? No, I never have any. <laughs> I don't have it long enough to fall in love with it. It's kind of a problem if you think about it. <laughs> I love you. There you go. Hospitable? Yeah, we should be hospitable. Saw some hospitality coming out of that 
pair back there the other night as they had that pair back there over there and as I provided the pulled pork. <laughs> it's hospitality right there. These are things that we should be. Elders, pastors set these examples so, God, so that God's people can follow them, so that God's people can live out the way that God intends in a fallen world. Because we are not of this world. This place is temporary. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are a people for God's own possession. We belong to him. And we are to not live out these worldly sinful things, but to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9. We are to be so different that it ticks off the world. And I think that at times we are so similar that the world says, come on over, let's party. Okay. Setting the example for our children and churches. Let's move to our fourth point. A loving father teaches his children, verse 17b, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Paul has already mentioned two types of teaching, if you think about it. Admonishment, that's a form of teaching. Example setting, that's physical teaching. Now he's referring to scriptural teaching, Bible exposition. He's saying, I teach the ways of Christ in every church I visit. That's what he's saying. This is what Paul was mostly known for. We tend to view him as, a, you know, kind of primarily as a missionary and church planner, but he was first and foremost an expositor of the Word of God took very seriously the commission to go and make disciples. How? By teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded. Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Paul took that very serious. And Scripture, if we're going to be honest here, it's our basis for everything. For teaching, example setting, begetting, bringing up, admonishment, and so on. It is our rule for faith and life because it is breathed out by God, 2 Tim 3.16, because it is perfect. It's flawless. Psalm 19, verse 7. It is entirely authoritative, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And, of course, it is powerful and effective. Uh, that's Hebrews 4.12. That's one of my favorite verses. A loving father will first teach the word to himself so that he can learn to live the Christian life and set a Christ-like example for his children and spouse. As he grasps and understands, comprehends the truth, he will begin to teach it to his wife, teach it to his children. Elder pastors follow the same pattern. They are first students. And as they learn and grow in God's word, they set a Christ-like example or continue to set Christ-like examples. And, and, and they also teach as they set those examples. They teach the word to their congregations. The word teach also denotes mode, as in the way the word should be presented by dads and elders. Paul seems to be saying, I teach plainly in every church I go to. 
This was in contrast to the local philosophers who sought to be impressive by utilizing, you know, all sorts of techniques and fancy words and phrasing, oratory skill. These guys just wanted to show off. Paul is saying, I taught plainly. MacArthur wrote, it is not enough to correct in what we teach. We must also be understandable. We must put aside our degrees, academic accomplishments, and theological jargon and simply speak the truth plainly in love. Amen. J.C. Ryle is probably my all-time favorite Anglican. He, uh, he was convinced that it was simple preaching that was probably the key factor during a very explosive gospel-centered revival in England during the 18th century. Pointing to Whitfield and Wesley, he wrote this, they were not ashamed to crucify their style or sacrifice their reputation for learning. They carried out the maxim of Augustine, who said that a wooden key is not as beautiful as a gold one, but if it can open the door when the gold one cannot, it is far more useful. Amen. The simplicity of teaching. Because the goal is to have understanding in the recipients. What good does it do to use high and lofty terms that our audience cannot understand? What good did it do for the Roman Catholic Church to use Latin for centuries when no one understood it? I think as a Frenchman, I should learn French and start preaching in French. Oui, oui, biblical. You guys would be like, what is this idiot doing? The goal is to have you understand. Wee wee? Wee, I mean, you don't say wee wee, that's getting weird. It's, it's not just teaching to the children and to the congregation, it's also the mode and how we do it. And we can learn from Whitfield and Wesley and Paul, because Paul used simple, simple terms here. I mean, these corrections are hardcore, but they're easy to understand. Fifth and final point, a loving father disciplines his children. We've kind of seen this already, but it's really, a, it really announced here at the end, 18 to 21. We'll look at 18 and to 19a first. Listen to what he says. This is really interesting as we kind of get toward wrapping up here. He says, some are arrogant. He's talking about people in the congregation at Corinth. As though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. So apparently there were arrogant, he calls them, church members who did not, uh, who basically I would say they not only diminished the seriousness of Paul's corrections, but they totally dismissed the idea of him actually coming to Corinth to lay down some biblical discipline. They were saying things like, you know what, I, I, it seems like what we're doing here, competing and, and these things, it seems really bad, but it's not as bad as he's making it, and we really have no reason to believe that he would travel this far to come up here and lay it down. I wouldn't worry about it. This is what they were saying. The apostles' response is poignant. Make no mistake, I will come to you ASAP, if the Lord permits. He wasn't 
presumptive. If the Lord prevented him from going, he wouldn't go because he was prevented from going somewhere at one time. And Paul remembered that. But he says, man, if the Lord permits it, I'm coming. You can bank on it. And these words were not meant to cause fear, but to bring sobriety. Paul was serious about bringing discipline if that's what needed to be brought into this church. Why? Because he was serious about sin. Sin kills. John Owen, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. When are we going to get this through our heads? And what he says in verses 19b and 20 is just penetrating. First it was poignant, now it's penetrating. And I will find out, listen to what he says, and I will find out not the talk of those arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Whoa. The apostle is saying, I'm not going to let your sinning go unchallenged. For their own sakes, as well as the sake of the gospel, he could not fail to discipline them. Why? Because an undisciplined child essentially belongs to parents who do not deeply care about his welfare. And Paul did not want to be thought of as that. Stop and think about that. You withhold the rod when it is necessary and you act like one who hates your child, not loves. Oh, but, you know, I want to be his friend. Oh, my gosh. You're not your kid's friend. I hear that all the time, and it drives me crazy. I just want to be friends with her, my daughter. Are we back in high school? You're a parent, I think. I'm kind of becoming convinced that just because parents have kids, that doesn't mean they're parents. Because they don't know the first thing about parenting. This nation's in bad shape, folks. It is going to be destroyed. Believe me. It is vile. Paul was too loving of a spiritual father not to discipline he was determined to follow his heavenly Father's example. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves. Amen? Proverbs 3.12. The arrogant people in Corinth thought they had good arguments for Paul in case of the event or in, in the event that he actually showed up. I, I tell you, we're figuring out exactly how to deal with him if he comes. We're putting together an argument. We met with the elders. We're writing out a response but you know what? Paul didn't care about their words. He was interested in their power. Why? Because the kingdom of God is not characterized by mere words, but by divine power. This is what he says. And it's mysterious. And it makes you wonder, what is he scratching at? Think of it like this. If the kingdom is present, the power of God is present. Jesus announced that the kingdom of heaven had come. And everywhere he went, he displayed divine power. He basically coupled his announcement that the kingdom is here with evidence for it in divine power through miracles and exorcisms and feeding people and raising the dead. Healings. The kingdom of God and divine power go hand in hand. If one is present, the other is present. 
if the kingdom of Christ is present, Christ and his power are present in and through the Holy Spirit. That's the idea here. If Paul travels to Corinth, and I think he will, right? He's telling them, I'm going to come up there and we're going to talk about this, boy. Woo! If I heard that, I'd already be confessing and repenting. He's coming, I'm done. It's kind of like your dad yelling at you when you're fighting with your sister in your room. I'm coming in there. Melissa, stop it. Right? If he travels to Corinth, he's not going to be interested in their opinions, explanations. Why? Because Paul understands that talk is cheap. He will be looking for divine power. How would divine power manifest itself? How would Paul know the kingdom of God is there in this church? Through power in these people's lives, producing holy living. That's how you know. But the reports Paul had received caused him to question the spiritual quality or even legitimacy at times of this body, and rightly so. The arrogant naysayers didn't help either. The principle I see here is pretty simple and clear. Faith that does not result in right living may have many words to support it, but it will have no power. A person's true spiritual character is not determined by the impressiveness of his speech, but by the power of his life. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. This is what Paul is saying. Paul will come to Corinth to assess, to see if the power of God is there, because right now he doesn't think it is. They've got all the words in the world, but those don't mean anything. He's saying, I know your words. Now show me the power of your lives. That's what I'm coming to look for. Really what he's doing is echoing whom? James. Faith without works is dead. James 2.17. That's what he's echoing. You got words. You say you got faith. I'm coming to look at your works because I got a letter describing your works. And they don't sound like you have power or that the kingdom of God has invaded this church at all. So you can say what you want to say. I don't care. I'm coming to look and to watch. That's heavy. That sounds like a good dad. I'm not going to just holler through the house. I'll come into your room. We'll find out. Last verse, 21. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Oh, man. Wow. Paul ends the four-chapter section on carnal unity and this explosive chapter uh, on correction and, and even fatherly love. He ends it all with this thought-provoking rhetorical question. He is saying, when I come to you, which mode would you prefer? Love through discipline? Shall I bring a rod and dole out spankings? Or would you prefer love through gentleness? Which kind of love do you want? Because you're going to get one or the other. The Greek word for rod is uh, rabdos or rabdos, and it simply means stick, flexible twig, or staff. That's how it's rendered in other places in Scripture. What comes to mind here is a shepherd's crook or staff. This tool was used to direct the sheep, discipline the sheep, smack wolves around, get other dangerous predators out of the sheep pen or out of the row. In a disciplinary scenario, when sheep began to wander off, which they do really quickly, you could have them all together and they're all going like, this is going to be the best day ever. And all of a sudden, oh, and you're like, come on. 
you got to go over there with that staff and put it around its neck and get back over here and now you got this one going over here it's kind of like eldership you know the church it's like what are you doing why, why you just walked off a cliff I'm not coming down there you know that's the picture here you use the staff to guide and direct the animal back in line with the rest of the sheep where it's safe. Uh, if the animal was particularly stubborn, you'd give them a, a smack on the rear end or the side and get them to come over. You throw it around their neck and jerk them back into place. I mean, it's just what you had to do. Shepherd would swat it a few times until it complied. Now, you've got to understand, Paul wasn't planning to use a literal rod here. You're probably like, thank God. Like Catholic school, put your hands out, Jimmy. Right, you remember that? I don't. I saw it in a movie. He wasn't planning to use a real rod here. This is a figurative term. It simply refers to a sharper kind of discipline. Like we see toward the end of the process in Matthew 18, 15 to 17, informing the whole church of an unrepentant person's sin. That should be fun. By the way, do you know what Fred's been doing? Huh. How about excommunication? Those are like, those are the rod, man. Interestingly, Paul was not an actual parent. Never married, nor had children that we can tell. But he sure sounds like a dad here, doesn't he? Doesn't he? You want me to come up there with a rod? I mean, it, that sounds like a dad. It sounds like my dad. I remember my own dad threatening me when he was still around, when I was being a total nimbus, you know. He would say things like, Philip, we can do this the hard way or the easy way. And I was like, I'll take the hard way because I'm stupid. <laughs> he would say things like that. We can do this the hard way or the easy way, and it's your choice. Don't leave me up to this kind of choice. I'm really going to have to think through this. Hmm, hard way. Every time. And I did literally choose the hard way because I was rebellious. And he would swat me across the rear end with a Native American horse whip. Do you know what those things look like? It had a deer hoof, and then out of the top of it, it had two three to four foot long braided strands of leather with like a little tail on the end of them. And the, you know, the Native Americans would, you know, hey, 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 and they'd ride their horses and they'd whip the rear end, that was weird. They'd rip the <laughs> rear end, you know, and, and just plowing through you know, plowing through the, through the prairie. And, and I mean, this is what they did. I mean, scare the crud out of you if you were a white dude out there trying to take some land. I just made that even more awkward. But I mean, he had one of these things. And when he brought it out, let me tell you, I remember my sister, Melissa, you know, she could be just a disaster in a moment. As soon as that thing came out, she'd start bawling and pleading and trying to hide, you know, and I would be like, ha! <laughs> And my dad would look at me and go, was there something funny? I'm like, no, 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 nothing's funny. Not at all. <laughs> I mean, it, when he hits you across the, across the back of your calves with it or across your, your rear end, and of course he was one that, that makes sure that you didn't have any protection on. So, you know, you, you'd get, your pants would have to come down. And he, he was very talented. He could somehow get the pants down and get the whip going at the same time. But I tell you, it felt like fire. I mean, if, if, if people were to do that today, they'd be locked up, right? And this is what he did. And it was just a, a terrifying thing. Felt like fire. All he had to do was show that thing. 
And I, I, it was like a torture device. All you had to do is show it, and we usually straighten right up. We stopped fighting. I know my dad loved us. It, it got weird when I was in junior high when he left, because then it didn't seem like he loved us. But prior to that, it sure seemed like he loved us because he disciplined us. You know, and, and, and he didn't spare the rod when necessary. And that was formative for me. You know, the fact of the matter is the apostle loved the Corinthians to the point of threatening them with serious discipline, the rod. If they refused to repent, he would use it. If they repented, he would come in gentleness. But either way, it's loving. Now come lovingly with a rod and ex execute some serious discipline here, even all the way up to the point of excommunication. If, that's, if you want to keep doing what you're doing and not repent of this ridiculousness and this carnal unity and these other things, then, then I'm going to come up there with the rod and I'm, I'm going to deal with you like my dad. I'll come in that room. Right? Sometimes he would even just hang it. Like if I was consigned to my room, like it was a two-day timeout, those were supposed to be like five minutes. And it was like for me, it was like, can I get some bread and water, you know? And he would hang that whip on the doorknob. And if you opened your door and saw it hanging, that meant you could not come out yet. It meant that you should not come out yet is really what it meant. Yeah. Paul's doing the same thing here. He's a loving father. They refuse to repent. He comes with the rod. If they do repent, he comes in loving gentleness. He shows up and says, I'm so happy that the Lord moved in your lives to such a degree that you repented of this foolishness. And um, I'm going to give you a hug instead of whoosh. Right? Loving father does the same thing. He'll try to reason with his child because that's what Paul's doing. What mode do you want? He's trying to reason. He'll try to reason with his child. If the child repents, the father, you know, if the child won't repent, he's got to discipline him with the rod. If he does repent, then the father's going to be gentle. A loving elder pastor follows the same pattern. He'll try to reason with his spiritual child. If they will not repent, he'll give them the rod of discipline, right? That's Matthew 18. If they do repent, then he's just going to be gentle and affirm what they've done and the decision they've made and build on that. And sadly, sometimes with some elders, I've never seen it at this church, because if I did, that, that elder would go right out that door with my shoe on his rear. But sometimes you could have someone who repents and, and then they still see fit. No. You don't do that. I mean, sin can have a, a, a lasting effect, and there might be some kind of process that you need to enter into with that spiritual child to bring about full restoration, but you don't bring the rod when someone has said, spare me from it. Never. You know, Jesus, Jesus wouldn't blow out a smoldering wick or break off a bent reed, meaning he was gentle all the time, but especially if someone was repentant. He saw, I think, a repentant centurion, a man of tremendous faith who wasn't even in the covenant in a sense, right, because only Jews were in it, and, and he says, never have I seen such faith 
in all of Israel. He didn't say, well, you know, you're a Gentile and I can't do anything for you. That's the text, guys. What have we learned? Loving father admonishes his children. A loving father begets his children. He doesn't just part of the procreation. He also not just brings them in, but brings them up. A loving father sets an example for his children. What example is he to follow? Paul's, yes. Why? Because Paul was following Jesus. Ultimately, we set the example of Christ. A loving father teaches his children. He's deliberate. He teaches his child the word. And a loving father disciplines his child. He does all of these things because he loves his child. And the pastor elder does all of these things because he loves his flock. He loves the Lord's flock. He's just an under-shepherd.